0: good morning again everybody turn with me in your bibles to revelation 13 we're in part 93 in our study in revelation 13 <laughs> actually just part five so just by way of a uh, quick review we're continuing our look this morning at the portrait of the second beast we see in revelation 13 the two beasts spelled out last time last week we looked at the authority of the second beast and we'll continue in verses 13 and 14 today as we look at the deception of the second beast so what have we learned so far have you guys learned anything is this helpful to you i hope it is so what have we learned so far the second beast is the false prophet as spelled out in revelation 16 and revelation 19 He is the propagandist for the first beast. That is, everything he does is pointing to the first beast. The first beast, remember, is the perverted sword or the wicked state, the the um, unsubmitted government authority, if you will, that persecutes the church. The second beast represents the system of all religious seduction in every false gospel. Um, this is important, and and I want to emphasize this. The second beast represents a system of all religious seduction that is any and every false gospel. And remember, last week we talked by, by way of the historic perspective of the church. Our 1689 references this in chapter 26, the historic view of the church that the church has held regarding um, this second beast, this false prophet, is it? it is the Antichrist. And specifically, if you read the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, paragraph four, it says the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. In whom by the appointment of the father, all power for the calling, institution, order or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner neither can the pope of rome in any sense be head thereof but is that antichrist the man of sin the son of perdition that exalts himself in the church against christ and all that is called god whom the lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming there is very great merit in this view and as i i read last week several um quotes from the reformers. And remember, the form the reformers were facing not just tough times. They were facing literal death at the hands of the Pope, if you will, the Roman Catholic Church. And, and I'm not trying to hedge my bets here, but I, I the position that I'm that I'm taking as I study this and, and my understanding of this increases is that this is a both and application, meaning. It's perfectly in line with biblical uh, interpretation to say that the Pope is the Antichrist. But also, John tells us in in his epistles in 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. First John 4, 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, that is the spirit of of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. It's not to say that this is not applicable to the seven churches at the time, because it was, and there are many who in their reading and understanding of this have held the historic position that the Antichrist was personified in Nero or Domitian. Or any number of of those who held government authority within Rome. So uh, as I as I look at this big picture, I want to emphasize the definition that I read to you when we started. The second beast represents the system of all religious seduction, any and every false gospel. (laughs) We talked; we had a good conversation about this yesterday, and we talked about the different religions that are essentially different flavors or different brands from all around the world. There are ethnic breakdowns or barriers in certain places of the world. The Far East has their flavor of religion. The Middle East has its flavor. Europe has its, but they all tend to one thing, which is what? Salvation by works. They're all answering to the same authority and who empowers the beast, who ultimately empowers the beast, the dragon. Satan would love us to have our own personal variation. And here in America, with our individualism, we have our own spirituality. Right. And if you peel back the onion on the so-called individualistic spirituality, it comes from Buddhism or Hinduism or fill in the blank, Taoism. It's just a new version of the same old thing. And it all points to the same thing, which is the dragon who empowers the beast. So I hope that wasn't too confusing. Um, But but as I study this, the, the pressing question for me that keeps coming back is considering that these beasts that, that we're reading about and studying about are concurrent with our day. How am I to live and worship? That's the question that I have. How am I, Danny, you, to live in light of this? And Peter sums it up well in 2 Peter 3.11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So last week we looked at the beast derived authority and I want to emphasize this. It's pointed out to us again in our text today that the authority of the beast is derived. It does not have it in and of itself. And there is a reminder that's built into this text as it is written to the seven churches to remind the seven churches that though the beast persecutes them, hunts them down, brings about tribulation. Who is sovereign? God. And it is part of God's eternal plan of redemption, the covenant of redemption. And he is demonstrating his power by extracting his children out of the clutches of the beast. And he is building his church. Verse 12 says, it that is the second beast exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. There is this reoccurring theme of worship that we see, and this is important. Worship defined is to do reverence to, and we, we um, talked about a great definition from Calvin. It says this, worship involves acknowledging God. To be as he is, the only source of all virtue, justice, holiness, wisdom, truth, power, goodness, mercy, life, and salvation. And thus, worship is to ascribe and render to him the glory of all that is good, to seek all things in him alone and in every want to have recourse to him alone. To sum it up, if you can't memorize that, it's a mouthful. But to sum it up, worship is demonstrated in thanksgiving very simply put when we thank god we are immediately ascribing to him as the source of all things one of the things that i've been telling the kids we all have hard things to do every day and as we get older and more mature the lord brings harder and harder things for us to do every day. And I don't know about you guys, but there are things that I dread to do that I just, I get up out of bed and I'm thinking, man, this is on my calendar today. and I do not want to do it. And, and one of the things that the Lord has taught me, especially of late, is, is this habit. When there's something that I dread to do, I immediately stop and thank him for it. Now, this is not a magical trick. It's not a mind game that I play with the Lord. The Lord is not to be manipulated. But, but think about something. When, when there's something that we dread, do we believe that God brings all things into our lives by his providential sovereign care for you and I? There are things that come into our lives that are difficult, but they're presence wrapped in ugly wrapping, aren't they? Yes. Because they look like they're bad. And on the surface, they seem bad. They seem difficult. They seem tragic. They seem hard. And we dread those things when we look at them from the outside. But if if we thank the Lord for them in advance, it, it does a couple of things. It causes us to, to be reminded of the fact that he is the source of everything. And all things work together for our good if we love him and are called according to his purposes. Meaning I am immediately, when I thank him for this, whatever this is, I'm ascribing him as the source of it. And when I ascribe him as the source of it and I recognize that it's for my good, even though it might be painful, I can then immediately go to the place that we talked about this morning when Abraham was put into a deep sleep and God says, I'm going to fulfill the covenant on your behalf and he walks between those severed animals, and God reminds Abraham that I am going to be with you as I take you out of the clutches of Pharaoh in Egypt, take you through the wilderness. I will be with you every step of the way. What a blessing it is when we look in the face of that hard thing, whether it's school, whether it's work, whether it's difficult circumstances or challenges that we have to face, what a blessing it is to know that the Lord is with us every step of the way. That's something to thank him for. And, and knowing that I can thank him in advance for that completely flips my attitude around about what I'm about to face. It's it's not magic, but it, it, it works. I'm telling you. Worship involves acknowledging God and thanking him as the source of everything. And the second beast is doing its best to turn the world's attention to the first beast as the source of everything. And the church, conversely, while the world is worshiping the first beast, the church is worshiping the one true God. Worship involves thanksgiving. Remember, the reprobate mind is described to us in Romans chapter 1 says although they knew God they did not honor him as God or give this is has this ever struck you as odd when you're reading the description of the reprobate mind it says they they did not honor him as God or give thanks to the evidence of a mind that is reprobate that is the mind that is gone that's given over to depravity And when we think of the depraved mind, we think of all all sorts of debauchery and wickedness, and absolutely. But the scripture highlights something very important here for us, that the evidence of the depraved and the reprobate mind is a lack of thanksgiving. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The reprobate mind refuses to acknowledge God and thank him. Conversely, for the church, the believer, Paul says in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, and Mark's getting ready to, to start in First Thessalonians, right? First Thessalonians 5 18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Did you hear that? Give thanks in good times. No, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The church, as we think about what the church should be doing in light of living in parallel and proximity to the two beasts that we're seeing in Revelation 13, the church goes to war with the two beasts by worshiping the one true God. That is what we are called to do. As we live in this wicked generation, God has called us to worship him. That's our call. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says, Not neglecting, or let me read verse 24 as well. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Here's what the church should be doing not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, listen, as you see the day, capital D, drawing near. As we get closer and closer to the coming of the Lord and the end of all things, what should the church be doing? We should be doing exactly what we are doing right now. We should be gathering together, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, looking at how we can encourage each other and edify each other and worship him. That's our job. That's our role. That's our responsibility. As the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as as uh, you think about it, this Thursday we celebrate what Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, by the way. Um, I was thinking about this, and I wanted to to give you a a close, I think, and in an in a historical illustration of what I'm talking about right now as we celebrate Thanksgiving this week, and. In our current culture and context, this this day that we celebrate Thanksgiving has really been turned into a family day where we get together, we gorge ourselves with turkey, by the way, don't forget your turkey, and and we watch football. That's become the tradition of our culture. But when that's our focus, we miss out on what it has always been about. I want to read you just a couple of the proclamations. There's four in history, but I won't take time to read them all. But the pilgrims and and Thanksgiving Day is tied directly to the Reformation. The pilgrims were Puritan in their theology. The Puritans, if you remember, wanted to purify the church, right? Church of England separates from the Church of Rome. And there's this supposed... um, purification if you will they're trying to get away from the roman catholic idolatry didn't do a very good job of it but the puritans we talk about puritan theology they're looking to purify the church to clean it if you will the pilgrims were of puritan theology but they were separatists so while the puritans wanted to stay and fix it the separatists were like it's not fixable so they were very similar in their theology, but the Puritans or the, the pilgrims were separatists. So what did they do? They left. They left England. They went to Holland initially until they came to America in 1620 due to persecution. And if you read the first Thanksgiving proclamation, I, I was impressed. I, I, I had a little, um, a little poll this morning, and Cam got it right. Who was is, who is the, the first governor? that proclaimed the day of thanksgiving in june 20 1676 anybody know close you're halfway there what's that you said Brad, is it bradford yes william bradford well done um well, william bradford in in june 20 1676 says this quote the holy god having by a long and continual series of his afflictive dispensations in and by the present war with the heathen natives of this land, written and brought to pass bitter things against his own covenant people in this wilderness. Yet so that we evidently discern that in the midst of his judgments, he hath remembered mercy, Mm -hmm. having remembered his footstool in the day of his sore displeasure against us for our sins with many singular intimations of his fatherly compassion and regard he goes on to say if it be of the lord's mercy that we are not consumed it certainly bespeaks our positive thankfulness when our enemies in, in any measure disappointed or destroyed and fearing the lord should take notice under so many intimate intimations of his returning mercy we should be found in insensible people and not standing before him with thanksgiving, as well as leading him with our complaints in the time of pressing afflictions. They had pressing afflictions, by the way. They lost half of their population as they came here. But fast forward um, a few years, almost 100 years, and this is my favorite Thanksgiving proclamation. You may not have heard this, or you may not remember this, but on November 1st, 1777, Samuel Adams. Now, most of you, I know what you're thinking when I say Sam Adams. You're thinking of that certain chilled aisle as you walk through the grocery store. That's not what he's famous for. Sam Adams said this, quote, listen to this, for as much as it is the indispensable duty of all men to adore the superintending providence of almighty God, to acknowledge with gratitude their obligation to him for benefits received, listen, together with penitent confession of their sins, whereby they had forfeited every favor and their humble and earnest supplication that it may please God through the merits of Jesus Christ, mercifully to forgive and block them out of remembrance. It is therefore recommended to set apart Thursday, the 18th day of December, it got changed in November as we go on, for solemn thanksgiving and praise that with one heart and one voice, the good people may express their grateful feelings of their heart and consecrate themselves to the service of their divine benefactor, acknowledging with gratitude their obligations to him for benefits received to prosper the means of religion for the promotion an enlargement of that kingdom, which per- consists in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. How about that? That was the first Thanksgiving proclamation after we constitute. Twelve years later, George Washington reads something very similar, and this is coming out of the Out of the war in um, 1789, we fast forward another 74 years, Abraham Lincoln, during the Civil War, after visiting Gettysburg and seeing the death and atrocities in Gettysburg, um, writes a a declaration of Thanksgiving and calls on these United States to, to thank God as the capital S source from which our bounties come. And he says this, and I'll just read a highlight of this. He says, no human counsel hath devised nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are gracious gifts of the most high God, who while dealing with us in anger for our sins hath nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper That they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. That was 160 years ago. And we don't talk like that anymore, do we? Those who were considered great men at our founding and leaders in our culture and government, we don't have men like that now. We don't hear that in our culture. And if you think about why we have been blessed with immense freedom i just read it to you we have historically acknowledged god and thanked him for every good good thing that he has blessed us with where is that in our culture today and so we talk about the wickedness of the beast which is wicked or evil government being punishment Um, the reprobate mind refuses to acknowledge the creator and, and we should understand the times in which we live. They're different. They're different, but it doesn't have to be that way for us. We need to thank the Lord for not just his common grace. And there are, we'll, we'll sit down Thursday as we think about Thanksgiving and thank the Lord for his temporal blessings. The fact that we have roofs over our head, we have food on our table we have immensely been immensely blessed with material prosperity in our country but we have far more than that we have immeasurable spiritual blessings that go beyond far beyond the physical realm just want to encourage you as you think about this thanksgiving is giving reverence and worship to god for what he has done and the church of jesus christ ought to be more thankful than anybody else walking the planet. And that's why I like Thanksgiving, by the way. It's one of my favorite holidays. But also Samuel Adams' declaration is pretty cool. Um, It's worth looking up and reading. All right, point three, verse 13. Verse 13 says, "It, it performs great signs. Now, who is it? This is referring to the second beast. It performs great signs, making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast that deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. This is taking us back, and we've seen this many times, back to the picture of Israel and Moses and Pharaoh in Egypt. And and I'm going to give you a lot of scripture here, so I hope you have your Bibles ready. Um, and you're able to follow along. But in Exodus 4:17, it says, and take this is God speaking to Moses as God is telling him to go to Pharaoh. Moses is making every excuse he can to, to get out of this. And God says to, to him, Take your take your hand, this staff in your hand, this staff, which you shall do these signs. So the picture of signs here that God gives to Moses is to validate Moses as the messenger of God, as he goes to speak to Pharaoh. And in Exodus chapter four and verse 30, it says this Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. This is before they go back to Pharaoh. This is to the children of Israel and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So God gives Moses and Aaron the signs that they are to demonstrate to the children of Israel, that they are the messengers of God, that they are to go to Pharaoh. And, and what are they to tell them? Let my people go. So the children of Israel recognize Moses and Aaron as sent by God. They go to Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter 7, we find Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a servant. And then what happens? Verse 11, then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and and they say, or and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same with their secret arts. So Pharaoh engages in a game of anything you can do, I can do better. So as we, we think about these signs, what are they? What are the signs and why? There are a couple of important questions that we need to answer this morning. The word sign here in the original Greek is the word samion. And these signs are typically miraculous. But they're given especially to confirm, to corroborate, or to authenticate. So here we have the second beast performing signs to confirm, to corroborate, and to authenticate both his authority and the authority of the first beast. There's just one problem with these signs. They're deceptive. So what are the signs? These signs are powerful, but deceptive displays in front of people. Notice notice the statement in verse 13. It performs great signs, making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Okay, the signs are done in front of people. There's a specific reason for that. These signs are powerful, but deceptive displays of spiritual power with the intent to turn us away from God's word. I'm going to prove out my my statement here with scripture, but let me say that again. These signs that, that we're reading about here are deceptive, they're powerful, but deceptive displays of spiritual power with the intent to turn us away from God's word. That's the reason for it. I don't know if you saw it, but recently for those of you that are on Facebook, there was a post from a church in West Virginia. They came out of their church service and they look up to the sky and there are these dancing lights and this is all on Facebook. You can see it. Biggest day. And I thought it was an interesting, interesting post to say the least, but they look like angelic beings or lights dancing. And there was there's no natural explanation for this. This is not just something that it's not the aurora borealis that they're, they're seeing here or the northern lights or whatever. And it's about a six-minute long post, and I listened to the comments of these church folks as they're standing there watching this, and they immediately assume it is angels, first off. And they begin praising God and thanking him. God is good. One of the, the commenters said, I've never seen anything like this. The Lord must be coming back real soon for there to be angels flying low like this. One 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 person hollered out, "Come down and meet us!" Mm. And then another person, and I I jotted down some of the statements as I was listening to this. I've been trying to tell people this church is anointed by God, and it's interesting that these signs are shiny, fascinating objects to take our attention away from the true gospel as found in God's word. And, and what it was amazing to me is how mesmerized. These people were, and not one of them said, Hey, this could be demonic. This could be a false sign or a false wonder. We should be, we should consult the word of God about this. Not one person said that I quoted. I I commented on the the post second Corinthians 11. I just posted the scripture second Corinthians 11, 13 through 15 for such men are false apostles Deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if a ser- if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. When we think about the signs that this false prophet exercises and brings about, these will be things that capture Our imagination. I've never seen anything like this. This is amazing. This has to be of God. But what it does is it places the scripture as secondary or lower, and it exalts experience. And what it will cause us to do is take our eyes off of God's word and put it onto something else that captures our fancy, captures our imagination. And it's beautiful, and it's shiny, and it's amazing, and I've never seen anything like this. This must be of God. Let's follow it. That's the picture that we're seeing with this false prophet. And Paul warns us. And and here's, here's what I want us to understand. This false prophet looks and sounds like Jesus. Who is the target of the deception? It's the church, it's the church. You think, well, it's it's the earth dweller and certainly it is. And and know that within our, our physical gathering as a body of Christ, there are earth dwellers here. There are. These are people who have made this their forever home. This is where they live, this is where they re- reside and they are the worshipers of the beast, the scripture says. But Paul warns, we see repeated warning in scripture time and time again. Galatians 1, 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort, listen to this, want to distort the gospel of Christ. And Paul says this, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be what? Accursed. So what is Paul saying? Forget about the package of delivery. Forget about the shiny object that is bringing you this new distorted version of the gospel, because that's smoke and mirrors. If we, the apostles preached to you any other gospel, you, the hearer, the church, the body of Christ must reject it. You must reject it. Why are they so effective in their deception? Well, look at Revelation 16, verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. This is the unholy trinity that we're studying in, in Revelation 13. Three. Three unclean spirits like like frogs verse 14 of revelation 16 listen to this for they are demonic spirits what do these demonic spirits do that come from the mouth of the dragon the mouth of the beast and the mouth of the false prophet it says they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of god the almighty we we tend to think these are magic tricks and there's certainly some magician type deception here involved but but i want you to understand something the deception of the enemy comes with power there is there is spiritual power and wickedness behind these deceptions that's what makes them so powerful and so effective it's not just hocus pocus let me pull a rabbit out of my hat or there's a false bottom in the hat or there's a escape hatch out of the bottom of this magic trunk. When I poke the sword through it, there's certainly some, some deception there. But my point being is that with this idolatry, with this false worship comes a measure of satanic power that, that, that empowers it and emboldens it. And one of the statements that we read here is it, the second beast makes fire come down from heaven. What do we make of that? Now, as soon as I say fire coming down from heaven, where does your mind go? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, so remember, he is the false prophet, right? But well, you guys are all coming up with great answers. What wrong? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> second Kings or First Kings. Oh. First Kings 18, Right. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, quote, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What is the false prophet doing here? He's authenticating the first beast as God. God. That's the picture here of calling fire down from heaven. Second Kings 1, 9 and 10 is the other um, place where Elijah calls fire down from heaven. The king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50 and went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of the hill and said to him, "O oh, man of God, this, the king says come down. But Elijah said to the captain of 50, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And what happened? Fire came down from heaven. The first beast, the state, he is God, and he has the power to convict and judge you. That's what the false prophet is saying there. Elijah, in his God-ordained role as prophet of Israel, let the prophets of Baal and Jezebel, who, by the way, empowered the 400 prophets of Baal, let them know that God is the judge and he will condemn them. And he and he demonstrated that with fire coming down from heaven. The picture here with the false prophet is, you better worship the one true God or you will get judged. That's the picture here. Part of the deception. So why, why does the second beast or the false prophet perform these signs? Well, obviously, we've touched on this for, for deception, but I want you to see this. Turn to Acts chapter 2. In verse 22, this false prophet in his deception is trying to look and sound like Jesus. So in Acts chapter 2, and verse 22, this is the apostles preaching, Peter here specifically, men of Israel, hear the words, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, listen, with mighty works and wonders. And signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. And goes on to indict them for wickedly taking him and crucifying him. Revelation 19.20 says this, the beast was captured. And and here is, um, if you don't want to know how the book ends, cover your ears for a second. But here is a spoiler alert. Revelation 19.20 And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So what is the deception? Well, Matthew 24, Jesus reminds us in Matthew 24, verse 24 and this should not surprise us, but he says for false Christs and false prophets will arise and listen, perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, who? Even the elect. Now, let me ask you a question. How effective, how pervasive, how deceptive, is the message of these false prophets that if it were possible, they could deceive the very elect out of their salvation. That's pretty effective. Before we dismiss it and say, I would never fall for that. We need to be advised and be warned because the scripture warns us. Jesus said in verse 25 of Matthew 24, see, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the son of man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What is Jesus saying? When I come back, you will know it. There will be no hiding it. I'm not coming back in secret. So when people are saying, oh, Jesus is here, or Jesus is there, don't believe it. So the question then becomes, how did the elect avoid deception? Well, the, the short, simple answer is this: God protects us. There is no doubt we are kept. And that's the application for our message this morning. but I want you to see this. Look in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Jesus says, "Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now what is the responsibility of the elect? We are to beware. How are we to beware? The best thing you can do is have your Bibles open when you're listening and compare what you're hearing to God's word. If it doesn't align, something's wrong. It should immediately cause you to question the one that you are listening to. We have a duty and a responsibility. Yes, the Lord keeps us, but he has given us his word with which we are to be like the Bereans to study, to compare what we are hearing. But he says, beware of false prophets. They will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Why are they in sheep's clothing? We, we'd see them coming a mile away if the wolf knocks on the door, right? But But they wear sheep's clothing because they want to blend in with who? The sheep. Again, Jesus is warning that the deception of the enemy is internal to the church. It's not just external. It's not somewhere out there. He goes on to say, you will recognize them by their fruits. What does our culture tell you when you hear that? Judge not. Judge not. It's amazing to me how we listen to the world preach the scripture to us. But have you ever heard that? Has anyone ever told you that? Don't judge. I want you to see that Jesus is telling us right here that we are to do what? Judge. Now, there's a difference between righteous judgment and unrighteous judgment, isn't there? But we, we as Bible-believing Christians, should understand that nuance. Jesus says you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, Jesus is not saying you're judging their heart, is he? condemning or condemning them absolutely there's not a con- an act of condemnation because who does condemnation belong to God you are not the final condemner and judger of their souls and their eternal destiny however what are you to judge their fruit he said our grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles in other words Saint child of God you should know the difference between a grape And a thorn bush or a fig or a thistle. Now, we don't eat many figs, so some of us might not recognize a fig, but you get the point. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So how do we know the difference between good fruit and bad fruit? Well, let me use my grocery store analogy again. When you go to the grocery store and you're in the produce aisle and you're looking to pick up fruit for your animal for not for your animals to eat <laughs> for your family, your ravenous children. <laughs> yeah, <produce laughs> When you're looking to pick up fruit for your children to eat, what do you do? Well, do you look at it? You say, well, these bananas are already black. By the time I put them on the counter, they'll have flies buzzing around them, and the kids won't eat them. I'm throwing money away. No, you look at it. You you see people holding up the melons and doing this. I don't know, knocking on them like that's going to tell you something. But we examine fruit. That's what God has called us to do. That's what Jesus is saying to do in regard to false prophets. He says, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. The second reason for the why of the signs is it's for judgment. This is God's sovereign judgment on the unbelieving world for rejecting his word and his gospel. The latter part of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read it last week regarding the false prophet, the Antichrist, but the, the last part of that passage is frightening. When you hear these words, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power. Remember, these are not just innocent little magic tricks. There's power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception, listen to this, for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Did you hear that? Why are they following false signs and wonders? Because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. This is a pronouncement of judgment. The darkness, the deception that is on the earth dweller is a pronouncement of judgment by God. In other words, we can infer without taking any um, liberty with the text that God is sovereign over the beasts. And even in, in the beast's wicked intent, God is using that as judgment upon the unbeliever. You say, is there any biblical precedent for that? Oh, I don't know. The Amorites, the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, fill in the blank. God has always sovereignly guided and directed human history to demonstrate his power over all humanity. And he has judged the world through wicked doers. Therefore, listen to this, verse 11. God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in, ri- in unrighteousness. This is the work of God. This is not our work. It is not our duty to, the, to determine who does and does not believe, who does and does not believe a lie or follows signs. Our duty, as Paul says in second Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1, he says, therefore having this ministry by the having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We need to understand that the picture of these two beasts is an indictment on this wicked generation. Matthew 12, 38. I said I was giving you a lot of scripture. I am. Jesus says this in Matthew 12. And some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, any student of the Old Testament would know what the Messiah would do what he would look like, right? So here are the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of Israel. And they said to Jesus, we wish to see a sign from you. Prove it. Prove who you are. And Jesus said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it accept the sign of the prophet Jonah for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the grave fish so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth Jesus is telling him the proof of who I am and who I claim to be will be seen in three days after my crucifixion because I will rise out of the grave and you will know that I am him the men of Nineveh will rise up listen to this this is an indictment against unbelieving Israel The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus the Messiah was standing right in front of them, and they couldn't see him. Jesus is telling them something far greater than Jonah. When Jonah went to preach to Nineveh, Nineveh repented in sackcloth and ashes. And you, Israel, are so blind and spiritually dead, that you don't see the Messiah standing right here in front of you. Verse 42 of Matthew 12, he says that the queen of the south, by the way, these are all foreigners. You catch that? The men of Nineveh are not Israelites. These are not the children of God. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth. To hear the wisdom of Solomon, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And you don't see it. And Jesus said, you're so wicked that you will not believe the word of God. And you want to see a sign. And Jesus pronounces their faithlessness as wickedness, a wicked generation that seeks after a sign. God's word is enough. For those that believe. First Corinthians one. I'm almost done. I promise. First Corinthians one. Where is the one who is wise? Verse 20. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand what? sign and the greeks seek wisdom but we preach christ crucified a stumbling block to jews and folly to the gentiles but to those who are called both jews and greeks christ the power of god and the wisdom of god for the foolishness of god is wiser than men and the weakness of god is stronger than men if the earth dweller will not hear god's word signs will not convince them either But the signs of the false prophet will lead them elsewhere. Say, well, how do you know they won't believe? Well, you remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16? I won't read it all, but there's a rich man who's got all the finest in this life, the clothes, the food. And then there's the poor man who's at his gate, who the dogs lick his sores. They both die. The poor man's carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man Is put in hell. And he cries out to Abraham. This is parabolic here, but he cries out to Abraham, have mercy on me. Send the diseased man with a a drop of water on his diseased finger to give me some relief from this anguish that I'm in. And Abraham says, can't do it. There's a gulf between us that is impassable. You can't come to us. We cannot come to you. And you remember what the rich man says to Abraham. Okay, if you can't come to me, at least warn my five brothers while they're still alive so that they do not come to this place of anguish. And you remember what Abraham says? You have the prophets. You have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Mm -hmm. And the rich man says, it's not enough. But if one comes back from the dead and warns them, they'll believe. And and of course, Abraham answers, even if one comes back from the dead, that's how great the blindness of unbelief is. But if they won't hear the word of God and they reject that, they won't hear even if one comes back from the dead. I want you to see this. The beast gives the people what they want It does these signs in front of them. The scripture is very plain here. It does these signs and these wonders in front of the people. It's putting on a show for them. And we look at these people who are deceived by the beast as victims. Don't. They're not. The performance of the signs is an indictment on the deceived. The earth dweller is not a victim. They're complicit. think about those who sit under false teaching what does the scripture say they heap to themselves teachers having what itching ears as the king james version talks about in other words they want food for their ears that pleases them they want teachers to scratch their ears to scratch their itch and what is the itch that needs to be scratched the lord wants you to be healthy wealthy and wise and you just meet God halfway and it's all good. I mean, fill in the, the false teaching. But the point is, is that those who are submitted to and under false teaching are not victims of it. They're complicit with it. Verse 14, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. We're going to look at this in detail in verse 15 next week. But notice there is a a very stark difference between those who dwell on the earth and those who dwell in heaven. The scripture is very clear. The, The people that are deceived are the earth dweller. And it tells them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and lived. And again, the reminder here is that it is allowed. The beast is allowed. An absolute reminder of the sovereignty of God. He's absolutely in control over the dragon and the two beasts. But what do you make of this telling them to make an image? So this is an allusion to Daniel chapter 3, when Nebuchadnezzar builds, constructs an image. This is interesting to me because Nebuchadnezzar did not say to the realm of Babylon, bow down to me and worship me did he he said to them worship the image that i constructed so what is the difference there if you're worshiping that which i created who are you worshiping that those who created it right Open Commentary had, had a really powerful point on this regarding worshiping the image. And it says this, quote, the beast, that is the second one, suggested that men should set up an image of the first beast. This goes to the whole picture of deception here. The, the second beast suggests that men should set up an image of the first beast, not in order to pay greater honor to the first beast, but that an apparent alternative might be offered to men. So that those who hesitated to pay direct allegiance to the first beast might overcome their scruples and worship something which resembled him. But while allowing them, listen to this, while allowing them to, as it were, cheat their own consciences by persuading them that they were not worshiping the beast himself. Hmm. These two classes of men are, of course, essentially one. They are, in reality, all followers of the beast, but still there is a difference in the manner in which they become worshipers of the beast. The distinction of the two classes seems to be kept in mind in Revelation 19, 20, and 24, where, however, all are included in the same condemnation. Thus, the apostle teaches us that those who, by specious and plausible reasoning, who, in short, by self-deceit, allow themselves to cast in their lot with the worldly, The avowed followers of the first beast are equally guilty with those who openly proclaim themselves followers of the world. Interesting. The point being is the deception is so great that there are some that would say, I'll never worship the beast. I'll never go that far. I'm different. And the picture is of self-deception here. But the deceived are the earth dwellers, those who have made this their forever home. I want you to see that the deception here also brings in a, an argument for validation because of the so-called resurrection here. And notice there's three times in this chapter where the false prophet is stealing the argument of the apostles. What was the argument of the apostles? In Acts chapter 2, when they preached to Israel, what did they say? Jesus is resurrected. Therefore... He is who he claimed to be. The false prophet is claiming the same thing. You notice the wording here, Revelation 13, 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. What is a mortal wound? You're dead, but its mortal wound is healed. Resurrection. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, Revelation 13, 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the beast whose mortal wound was healed. You see, the picture here is a complete hijacking of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the picture. And we need to understand that this deception is happening both inside and outside the church. I want to remind you, and and as we look back retroactively at what we've already studied, if you look at Revelation 11, John has this picture of the temple. In verse 1, it says, And I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Again, the picture there is the is a deception that enters. And, and by the way, it goes in, but only so far. Those who are in the inner sanctuary, the genuine saints of God are, are not deceived out of their salvation. So what is the application for us as we think about this? Well, I'll bring it full circle. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. You have assurance that you have not been deceived this morning. My question for you this morning is, what are you resting in? What are you resting in? What is the gospel on which you are basing your salvation? Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, verse 13 of Revelation 2, or 2 Thessalonians 2, He said, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. Listen, why are we to give thanks? Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief. What of the truth? You believe the truth. Why? Because you're smart, because you see the the beast coming a mile away and you would never fall for that line. No, you were chosen to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. It is given to you to believe. And if you believe in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're resting on what he has done, you're not contributing to your salvation. You can know that you're resting in the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To this, he has called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about covenants this morning. The guarantee of our covenant is the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I could not keep our, a covenant with God. We are the beneficiaries, though. Verse 15, so then, brothers, stand firm. Is there something we are to do? Yes. The Lord has chosen us. Through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth, what is our responsibility? Paul says it this this way. He said, so then, because of this, (laughs) therefore, brothers, stand firm. Hold to to the traditions that you have been taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. What What is he saying? Hold firm to this. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The answer as deception abounds around us is to hold fast to God's word. That's where we have to anchor ourselves. And we are to judge fruit. You are to judge what you hear out of this pulpit. You hear that? Everybody listen. Listen. You are to be judge of what you hear coming out of this pulpit. That means you have a responsibility to open God's word and determine if what you are hearing is the truth. And if it's not the truth, you have a responsibility out there to change who is preaching here. That's your responsibility. You're not without responsibility. We all are accountable. We're to stand fast and hold to the to to the traditions that were taught by by the apostles in the spoken word of God. And we're to judge fruit. It's our responsibility. If we do this, we're kept by the grace of God and we're able to discern false teaching and false prophets and we're able to chase away the wolves from the flock, those that try and sneak in in sheep's clothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the warning that we have from your word to beware, to be on our guard, to watch very carefully. Lord, we are to be discerning hearers. We're to judge fruit. And we're to compare what we hear, what we see to your word. And if it doesn't align, then something's wrong. And we're to take action if it does not align. We ask that you would help us to deepen our study in your word, to deepen our understanding of your word. Father, to deepen our accountability to your word. I pray, Lord, as we come to your table this morning, that you would cause us to be overwhelmed by thanksgiving for what you have done. You have made us benefactors of your covenant of grace And the only thing we have to offer you is sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise for what you have done. That is it. We contribute nothing. We're just like Abraham asleep in a coma, but we thank you for your regenerating grace for saving us, for giving us life. Eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to obey. Lord, we pray for this church family. We pray for those who are gathered here this morning that you might open dead eyes, change hearts, Lord. In Revelation 18, Father, you give a proclamation to come out from among her. We know that you are in the midst of a great redeeming operation in this world where you are calling those who are under the the spell and the deception of the beast, you're calling them out into your family, freeing them from the bondage of sin and making them your adopted children. And we're part of that. You have called us to be faithful to proclaim your word. We ask for your help with that. Lord, left to ourselves, we are faint-hearted, we're afraid, we're timid, we don't want to rock the boat. We want to fly under the radar sometimes, Lord, and you have not called us to that. You've called us to openly worship you and Thank you for being the source of all things as our creator. And we praise you this morning as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark and Jesse, you coming up?